Christmas is a time filled with many, many wild and wonderful traditions. And if you were to travel around the world uh, during this Christmas time, this Advent season, you would find all kinds of wonderful traditions. For instance, I find this one very fascinating that the Japanese celebrate Christmas with their favorite holiday meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Did you know that? Since 1974, KFC has been the Japanese Christmas meal. For three or four days leading up uh, to Christmas, December, starting around the 22nd or 23rd, Um, Through the 25th, KFC has this promotional Christmas dinner bucket thing. And people line up by the thousands outside of KFC. You have to pre-order sometimes months in in advance to get their Kentucky Christmas, as they call it. So if you were to move away from Japan and you were to travel to the Philippines at Christmas time, you might come across a festival of giant lanterns. These are beautiful lanterns, all lit up, um, computer technology, and they do all kinds of Christmas dances within these lanterns. It's a traditional Christmas ornament that is found in most homes, in Filipino homes. It's called the parole, or sometimes called the parole, um, which got its inspiration from the Bethlehem star. And through the years, the art of making the parole has become uh, this ev- from this simple little Christmas ornament that they hang in their homes. To it's evolved to this massive um, metallic frame psychedelic star figurine with nine thousand computer controlled LED lights, and um, they've they've turned it into this competition where eleven different cities within the the um, region compete and bring all their um, paroles to this uh, festival of giant lanterns and every city the city of San Fernando that's really what it's called it's not our San Fernando it's in um, Pampanga and it holds this annual festival of the Christmas lanterns and people from all over the world go to see this at Christmas time if you were to go to Iceland you'll hear of the 13 Yule Lads The 13 Yule Lads are little trickster trolls who, one at a time, on the 13 days leading up to Christmas, break into your home. And they pull all kinds of pranks, but they leave presents for good girls and boys. But not before they've licked all the spoons, or they've slammed all the doors, or they've eaten all the sausages. They are tricksters. Here in America, Christmas is filled with all kinds of traditions as well. From gifts under the tree, to long lines at the shopping mall, from Santa Baby to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, from reindeer, yes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, to Elf on the Shelf, our country celebrates the season with all sorts of traditions that make us feel the Christmas spirit. But none of those local traditions in any of the countries I mentioned get to the best part of Christmas. Because Christmas is more than a man-made tradition. It's a day that remembers the birth of who? Jesus Christ. The day God became man and dwelt among us. Now, if we think about Christmas in this way, then it's a tradition that stands out above all the others, right? Because it's not just reserved for one nation or one culture, but rather the birth of Christ is for the whole world. 
for all people at all times in all places. And this tradition is passed down in order to communicate God's word, his love, to us. And this tradition is very special for all people. As John 3.16 put it, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Now, maybe you don't think of John 3.16 as a Christmas verse, but I do. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave us his son. What's the giving of the son but a reference to the Christ child that would be born to give his life as a ransom for the sins of the world? So this is what Christmas is all about. Um, Jeannie was telling me this morning that St. Matthew's down the, the street has a sign up that says what? Silly Santa. Silly Santa. Christmas is for Jesus, right? That's what it's all about. Um, I love the little picture. I have one in my home of Santa Claus kneeling at the manger. Like, that's what it's about, right? It's not about Santa, but every knee will bow to the one and only true king. Christmas as a celebration of Christ's birth is a tradition that passes down the good news of God's love that has come down to us. So we're going to take a look at that verse, just that one verse, John 3:16, because it is a hefty verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are some pretty awesome words in this verse that could use some clarification. As a matter of fact, there are eight massively important words in this verse that we need to understand in order to fully appreciate the power and the preciousness that this verse holds. So we're going to look at the first big word found in this passage, which is God. For God so loved the world. God is a familiar word, but one that does need to be defined. God isn't a reference to some God of our own making. It's not a generic reference to a divine being that different religions call by different names. No, the God of John 3.16 is the God of the Bible. When Jesus spoke these words, I don't know if you knew that, but Jesus spoke these words in John 3.16, there's no reason to think that he meant any other God other than the God of the Old Testament. It's a reference to the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, the Lord of history, the righteous judge, and the almighty redeemer, God. All of us were made by this God. And our first and highest duty and our reason for being is to honor him and give him glory. Unfortunately, we've all failed at that. We've messed up. And as a result, we are all under his righteous displeasure. That's what makes John 3.16 so precious. It describes the way that God acted in order to rescue us from this terrible condition. Which brings us to the second big word that's used in this verse, which is loved. For God so loved the world. The question before us today is how God loves the, wor- the world according to this verse in John 3.16. From this verse, a few things seem pretty obvious to me. First, God loves the world. That is, he loves the great totality of the fallen sinful people in the world. Not just the United States, 
not just China, not Japan, not just Russia. He loves the entire world, all human beings. Second, this love is of such an intense and such a, a great magnitude that it moved God so much to send his own son to die for all of humankind. Third, one clear purpose and effect of this intense love is that it means uh, the purpose is to open up a door or create a bridge that would be available to anyone. Anyone who believes in the Son can have access to God, can have eternal life. And fourth, therefore, this love is indiscriminate. It may be spoken to and promised to and applied to every single person on earth, without exception. Which brings us to the third major word in this passage, which is the world. God, almighty creator of heaven and earth, loved so much that he sent his son to the world. Because God's love is indiscriminate, it is available to anyone. It goes out to all people of every ethnic group, of every age, of every socioeconomic category, and best of all, to every degree of sinner, from the bad to the worst. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The next word in this verse that is pretty hefty that I want to talk about is the word gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. Two things need to be said about this giving that God did. First is that this was a giving from heaven. It came directly down from heaven. And the other is that it's, it's not just a giving of a gift, but that, that, that gift came down from heaven to earth, but that gift was that somebody would die. Verse 17 replaces the word give with send. If you were to go on in John 3.16 and go to verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son. Verse 16 says he gave his son. And then verse 17, For God did not, give, or did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's a gift. So the giving... Uh, Verse 16 is God's sending of his son into the world on a mission from heaven. In John 10, verses 17 17 and 18, we see what the climax of this mission from the Father is. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That last sentence shows that the reason that the Father sent the Son, the reason that he gave him to us, was so that the Son would lay down his life. I lay it down of my own accord. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, the giving is God sending his Son to earth on a mission to die. That's an incredible gift. There is no greater gift than that. The next important word we come to in this passage is son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
I love the image. I found this image yesterday. I've never seen it before. But I just love, it's such a great picture of the father loving his son, right? And just the son receiving that love. I just love that picture. When we hear the term son, we typically think of this biological offspring. But Jesus isn't God's son in the sense of a human father and son. God didn't get married and have a son. He didn't mate with Mary and together with her produce a son. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God made manifest in human flesh. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John 1.14 goes on to say, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's Son in that he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35 declares, The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. When we use the term Son of God in reference to Jesus Christ, the title takes on a multifaceted meaning and carries great significance. In the New Testament, Jesus' sonship highlights his relationship to the Father. It also relates his messianic purpose and his divine nature. So when we say the Son of God, that means three separate things. As the Son of God, Jesus exemplified a perfect relationship with the Father. He, he modeled what our relationship with the Father can be like. His sonship was also connected to his role as the chosen Messiah who was prophesied to bring salvation to men. And finally, and maybe most significantly, the term Son of God speaks of Jesus' deity. He is God himself. In Colossians, Jesus is described as God's beloved Son. And, it, and also, I love this, in Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is, think about that, the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews, he is declared and described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Are you starting to see the significance of this verse more clearly as we look at each of the words that are chosen to put it together? The next significant word in this passage is believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes. Three quick observations about this type of believing here. First, the word believe means that we're going to embrace something as true. We believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God in human flesh. And when it's a person, that thing that we're believing in, it means that we're going to trust them to be what they are and to do what they say they're going to do, right? If you believe in someone, you believe they're going to succeed. You believe that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. So if you believe in Jesus, you believe his purpose. Second, John 1, 11 and 12 shows us that believing and receiving go hand in hand, right? It's hard to believe in Jesus and then not receive him, right? I believe Jesus is Christ, but nah, it's not for me. <laughs> It's kind of hard to really truly believe in him and not receive him. 
John 1, 11 and 12 says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And third, not everybody will believe and benefit from what Jesus came to do. John 3.16 clearly says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The rest, those who don't believe, will perish. They will not have eternal life with him in heaven. Which brings us to the next significant word in this verse, which is perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What's most clear and most important is to see that perish is the alternative to eternal life. Not perish, but have eternal life. Not perish, what's, if you don't perish, what is it? You have eternal life, right? It's the opposite. So if you perish, you don't get eternal life. Another thing is clear here is that to perish means being condemned. John 3.18 describes perishing as being condemned. So what you need to understand is if you just decide not to believe and not to receive, you will perish, which means you're still going to live forever, still going to suffer. It's just not going to be in heaven, right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And that means that God's judicial sentence of wrath is on us as sinners and remains on us. And we see this in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we're already under condemnation because of our own sin and unbelief. And perishing means staying there forever under God's wrath. There's nothing you can imagine worse than having the omnipotent God oppose you with his righteous wrath forever. That's what perishing means. So the last important word in this passage is life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does Jesus mean when he says eternal life? Someone might say, well, eternal life is living forever. That's what it means. But that's not it. No one ceases to exist when they die. You either perish or have eternal life. Well, then you might be thinking eternal life must be living forever in heaven instead of hell. It must mean eternal life must mean living in heaven. Perish means living in hell. And that's not quite it either because John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Everlasting life is a present tense possession. It's not something that begins when we die, when we go to heaven. There are a number of scriptures that speak to everlasting life as something we begin here on earth. John 4.14, John 5.24, John 6.27, John 6.40, John 6.47. They all speak of this eternal life starting here on earth. So the question remains, well, then what is everlasting life? Many people have mistakenly thought that the goal of salvation is forgiveness of sin to avoid hell. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get forgiveness of my sin so I don't go to hell. 
Sure, not perishing in hell. That's a good thing. That's an important goal to have. It's an important part of what Jesus came to do. He accomplished that by paying the debt for all our sins, past, present, and even the ones that we haven't committed yet. And if that's all there is to salvation, that's more than any of us deserve, right? More than any of us deserve. And it would still be worth preaching about. But salvation is much, much more than getting our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven instead of hell. Let me say it this way. If all you did was ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins so you wouldn't perish in hell, then you are missing out on eternal life here and now. Sin was a barrier that stood between us and a holy God, and it had to be removed. That's exactly what Jesus did, and he did it well. Sin is no longer standing between God and man. But to what does that entitle us? Sure, it entitles us to live forever with God in heaven. That is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But there are tremendous benefits right here and right now. Eternal life is one of those benefits. Jesus defined eternal life for us in John 17, 3, which says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Once you accept and receive, believe and receive Jesus, you get to know God because that barrier is now gone. An eternal life for you has begun and you are getting to know God on a personal level. When Jesus said eternal life was knowing God, he was speaking of having an intimate, close, personal relationship with God. And if you have a relationship with God, then you know that that is awesome. It's amazing. I don't know who I was talking to this week. Um, and we were talking about going through a difficult situation and not having God in your life. And how people are coping. How are people coping? You know, during this whole COVID crisis, during you know, the election drama. How are people coping who don't have God in their life? When you have God in your life, there is a peace that passes all understanding. Many people believe Jesus died to forgive their sins, but they still don't have a close, personal, intimate relationship with God the Father. They think that's reserved for heaven. They're content to muddle through life, singing songs about how when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? When we get to heaven, it's going to be great. But right now, we're just going to muddle through, you know? It doesn't have to be that way. That is not to take away anything from heaven. But we can enjoy eternal life, a close, intimate, personal relationship with God, our Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, right now. It's not pie in the sky, by and by, but rather steak on your plate while you wait. <laughs> Jesus said in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that those who believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If all you have done is believe on Jesus so you won't go to hell, then you are missing out on everlasting life right now. So why is this so misunderstood? Well, it's because the church has changed the message of salvation. They have placed a period, a full stop, 
after the word perish in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Period. Full stop. They've told the world that the reason God sent his son to die for their sins was that they wouldn't perish. That excludes the true message of eternal life and intimate relationship with God as the goal of salvation. They shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Which leaves us with just one question. Do you live in the forgiveness and the life and the freedom of John 3.16 right now? I'm not asking if you give lip service to this verse. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But do you live it? Is this your life? Is everything you do permeated with this verse? That because God sent his son as a gift for you, so that you wouldn't have to perish, but could have everlasting life, does that change who you are? I hope it does. Mm -hmm.